You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Guidepost. Well, you know, put your hands together and thank the Lord because you're not going to hear my voice today. We got our special, uh, we got our special host, Blaine Chocolate, and he's got a friend and kind of partner in all of this. I'll, I'll let Blaine introduce him. Uh, if you have any questions about this podcast, uh, just send uh, comments at saltwaterguidesassociation.org. If we read it on the air, you will win a free pair of Costas from our awesome sponsor, Costa Del Mar. Uh, I know Blaine has been uh, chasing fish of all kinds for the past couple of weeks. I know I know he took the guest out, and I think they had a pretty darn good time. So, Blaine, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, man. Uh, yeah, it's been busy past couple of weeks, um, but no can't can't complain i've been on the water every day <laughs> no that's not that. That, that is nothing to complain about so i'm i am gonna i am gonna kind of sign off and and watch intently from my office and make sure that everything technically goes okay and uh and the audience is yours my friend all right appreciate it bud well um thanks everybody for joining um i've got a special guest today that i'm really excited to, to share with you it's someone I've known quite a while. Um, he's had a shot for, I think, 30 years now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I want to introduce my friend Brian Fleshing of Mad River Outfitters up in Ohio, Columbus, to be be exact. How you doing, buddy? Doing well, Blaine. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yep. So we just saw each other a couple days ago. Um, I had Brian down here to show him a little bit about uh, the Chesapeake Bay and uh, the East Coast, uh, Mid-Atlantic spe specifically, um, all the years I think he's been fishing all over the place. Uh, I don't think he'd ever had the opportunity to fish this area. And it, it was important for me to kind of share what we have here and um, the good and the bad. Uh, you know, part of my role with uh, ASGA is is kind of highlighting the Chesapeake Bay and the East Coast, Mid-Atlantic um, for as far as North Carolina, South Carolina. Maryland, Virginia, and a little bit up north. You know, we have a lot of struggles, which we kind of talked about and showed you. Um, but my main focus right now, we'll get into the conservation part and, our, and, and the fun that we had here recently. Just want to share your story. You know, you've been in the business for a long time. Um, both of us, about pretty close to about the same amount of years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, we're very close in age and kind of have same of the, uh, some of the same friends and mentors um slash heroes that we've had kind of guide us along the way and we'll talk a little bit about that but i want to i want to talk about mad river outfitters uh in columbus ohio and um you know i get it a lot you know um I, people think they don't think of columbus ohio as being a major hub for a big fly shop like yours you've built a a pretty pretty big fly shop you know to be where you are um i think you it's amazing what you've been able to accomplish in all these years, you know, I've uh, followed you along. Uh, we've done a few things together in the past. I mean, I think I first met you at, at, at the IFTD show in Denver, yeah. probably 
30 years ago, maybe. Um, yeah, it's probably had, something like attended, that. Yeah, we attended a, um, I think we attended um, one of the um, dealer summits or something like that uh, prior to I I IFTD. I think yeah, that's, that's the right. Place I bet you. Um, so it's it's amazing that um, it's been that long, right? We've gotten a little longer <laughs> in the tooth. Starting start to feel old. Right. <laughs> Especially after what you did to me last week, man, that wore me out. I think we slept. I think we slept about six hours in four days. So, uh, uh, yeah. but we had a lot of fun. But anyways, yeah, it's it's been a long time. Uh, we both been doing this for a very long time, and it's uh, I still look back and and the crazy thing is I still feel like we're just getting started. Uh, that's yeah, right. the real. That's the really cool thing. I, I, I still feel like uh, Matter for Outfitters, I feel like you individually, and I think us together um, in a lot of projects that we're working on and, and events that we're working on, uh, I feel like we're just getting started and then there's so much more to do. Uh, I just hope I live long enough to do it. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about your background a little bit. How did, how did you get into, how did you get into fly fish? And then we'll talk about how you got into your fly shop. And then, sure. Uh, um, well, I, I can remember uh, as a kid, first and foremost, my both of my grandfathers on my mom's side and my dad's side, uh, they were both anglers. And my dad grew up fishing. His brother was a uh, fish in bass tournaments and had, you know, I, I grew up around bass boats and the fishing culture. Uh, my dad was really into fishing of all types. Uh, my uncle, who uh, he and I are only 20 years difference, we've always shared a love of music and fishing. And my uncle was really into fly fishing. And so I grew up in a fishing and music related family. And um, I can remember as a, as a kid, probably six or seven years old, my dad had a big wooden um, chest, a wooden cabinet that he made. In fact, I, I still have this thing. In fact, I was digging through it last night. Um, but he had this big wooden chest with these drawers. And as a kid, I used to go downstairs and kind of sneak in and open it up. And I would open the drawers. And I can remember I found moose parts of moose and deer and all these exotic feathers and i can still to this day remember the smell of that you know you know how natural fly tying materials you get a, a drawer full of bucktails especially ones that were probably 25 years old at that point um it, it has a certain smell and i can still remember that smell and then finally i think my dad caught me uh kind of going through this uh, opening the drawers and looking. And I remember he sat me down and taught me to tie a fly. And that's when I was seven years old. I called it the Fleshig Special. I still actually have that fly. In fact, we, we should probably show that sometime. Uh, but I tied that fly when I was seven years old. And then later that summer, I went to a place called Bennett Springs State Park in Missouri with my uncle. And I wound up catching my first trout on a fly rod. And really, I've been fishing with a fly rod ever since, since I was seven. Um, you know, I got into music and girls and cars and stuff in high school. But 
Um, I, I kind of circled back on fly fishing. I remember when I was 16 years old, I had saved up like 200 bucks. And um, my parents asked me what I wanted for my birthday. And I said, well, I want, I'll put in 200 bucks and you put in 200 bucks. And we bought like 40 or 60, I forget how many books it was. And I just launched into, um, call it a college education on fly fishing. And um, still to this day, I still read books every night of my life. I, I've got a book right next to my bed uh, when I'm on airplanes, sometimes even in the mornings. I read incessantly and read the classics. I read new stuff. But I, I just started reading and I just gave myself I used to have a highlighter and I would highlight everything and dog ear the pages. And I just studied. I mean, I wasn't interested in, in going to school, although I wound up going to school, but they didn't have a fly fishing degree. So I wound up studying jazz guitar, which uh, I, I really didn't have much interest and in. I wound up dropping out and I dropped out of college after uh, two years and I dropped out to get a job as the manager of a fly shop. And that was uh, 1990. Wow. And that's, so I, I quit. But of course, you know, a, a degree in jazz guitar wasn't going to get me very far. I mean, I, 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 I was never that good to begin with. And, and no matter how hard I, I could have practiced 18 hours a day for the next 40 years, and I would have never made a living playing jazz guitar. So I got into the next most lucrative business, and that was fly fishing. <laughs> great decision, right? I yeah, mean great decision. I lived in a one-bedroom apartment with a chocolate Labrador for the first 15 years of my career here at Matter for Outfitters. And you know, we I still have to work six, seven days a week, even you know, to make a living, even though the the shop is very successful, but here we are uh, nearly 30 years later. Um, let's talk, let's talk about Mad River and let's talk about how, how, how did you end up getting started with it? What made you make, take that plunge? I mean, I, we, we pretty much, I had a fly shop. Not many people realize I had a fly shop for 15 years. Uh, right. Um, and it's a similar deal. I sucked at school, didn't have any interest in it. And I was kind of floundering away trying to do college but it just wasn't in my interest best interest definitely you know i felt like being young personally at that time in my life that if i could get money set aside or if i could get someone to believe in me or get the banks to believe in me i was going to take that plunge start a fly shop in my hometown of roanoke and uh figured if it failed i would have the rest of my life to get a real job you know what i mean so right that's kind of where I was. What made you what made you do that? What made you take that that step? Well, I, I, I worked um, at, at a place. It was a fly shop in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is where I, I, grew, I actually grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. And then when I was 13, my father got transferred and got a, a good job. Uh, my dad was in the advertising and marketing business, actually market research. In fact, my dad uh, some people may not like this, but my dad can sometimes be credited with inventing telemarketing, uh, believe it or not. And not, not the bad kind. He would, he, he used to do market research. And so he came up with this idea to just start calling people 
cold calling and saying, hey, did you watch Happy Days last night? And did you see this commercial for Purina Dog Chow? So it was market research and advertising research. Anyways, he got a decent job in Cincinnati. I went to junior high school, high school, wound up getting into the University of Cincinnati um, in, in the jazz guitar program. And but I was like you, I had no interest in school. I hated school. As a matter of fact, I still have nightmares. In fact, I had one not too long ago that I was still in high school and and like I hadn't I hadn't been in like 10 years. And they're like, no, you got to go. You got to go finish up and get your high school degree. And I'm like, well, I, I have I have no idea what classes or what, where do I go? It was absolute nightmare. So I hated school. Um, I pretty much hated college, even though I was just playing the guitar. Um, but still, all I wanted to do is fish. And all I could think about was fishing and fly fishing. And, you know, how could I turn this into uh, a living? And so I started hanging out at this, this a fly shop opened in Cincinnati. I think they opened up in about 1988 or so. I started hanging out there um, like like five times a week. I would just go there like after school and hang out and we'd tie flies and, and you know, talk fishing and talk about uh, our local trout stream, the Mad River. And before too long, the owner of the shop, he, he said, you know, we've got people that would be willing to pay for a guide. Would you be interested in guiding? And I said, well, heck yeah, I could do that. And it was actually 1989. It was April of 89 during the Hendrickson Hatch, and uh, I I ran my first guide trip. And as as far as as far as we can tell, that was probably the first fly fishing guide trip ever conducted in Ohio, for that matter. I mean, people just didn't even know that there were trout, brown trout, in the Mad River. And then a, about a year later. Um, uh, the, that owner sold the shop to the guy who was the manager. I had been great friends with him and he called me immediately and he said, Hey, I want you to be the manager of my shop. And I, I quit school. Uh, I had a part-time job working at a music store. I quit that and I became manager of his shop. And I did that for four and a half years from 1990 to mid 1994 and try to make a long story short, but at the time, uh, the shop was a full-line Orvis dealer. You remember those days. And um, so I worked very closely with Orvis and a gentleman by the name of Dick Post. And Dick was our Orvis rep, also wrote some, some really great books. And, um, you know, I, I kind of had a talk with my dad at one point, and I said, you know, I think I could do this for a living. I think I could do this myself and not have to work for someone else. And it just so, so my dad and I contacted Orvis and Dick uh, knew of the fact that I pretty much ran that business. And just so happens that Columbus, Ohio was in dire need of a good fly shop. And it was also right here next to me, Dublin, Ohio. And then right over here in Worthington, Ohio, were the top two zip codes for Orvis catalog sales in the United States. Dublin was number one. Worthington was number two. 
So this wow. was this was Orvis country. And now back in the days, I mean, we were selling dog beds and we were selling, you know, Orvis clothing. And so we were kind of an Orvis lifestyle shop. But certainly the focus was we were a fly shop. And um, that's what I set out to do. Uh, and I think so that was um, uh, let's see, I, I quit. I quit working at Streamside Outfitters on September 1st of 1994. I moved to Columbus October 1st of 1994, and we opened Mad River Outfitters December 1st of 1994. So we're actually coming up on 29 years. But still, my dad and I drove drove up here to Columbus. We drove around. We found a space that we thought was a good location because it's location, location, location when it comes to retail. And my dad and I built the first store. Uh, we painted it, we we hammered up all the trim and all the slat wall and, um, and we opened our doors December 1st and everybody in the industry, I don't know if you remember like Dave Hoblum and Bill Fraser and most of those guys said, ah, there's no way you can, no way you can do this. We can't get you product in time, but we did it. And without bragging, within two years, we were the largest Orvis dealer in the United States. Wow. Within two years. That's amazing. It was pretty cool. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that kind of goes to show um, why I respect what you've done. I mean, I've, I've followed your career for a long time, right? So, and vice uh, versa. And I've, seen, I've seen your growth, you know, and, and, and I've been at your shop many times now, a couple times. And, given presentations and, you know, you've created a, a culture there, not just with the locals, but I mean, you have an amazing online presence, you know, you, you have a, an incredible YouTube channel that, uh, that I've really, really like. And obviously a lot of other people like too, cause I think you have over 200,000 followers on that. Um, if I'm not mistaken, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I think we're, uh, I think we're about to hit 221,000 followers probably today. Nice. Well, see, I mean, you, you, you give out such great information. You know, the biggest thing about fly fishing is we've always historically tried to make it way more complicated than it really needs to be. And, and we try to, you know, the community, I feel like the culture's changed a lot, but you know, there's so many things out there like calling, <laughs> calling indicators, I mean, bobbers indicators and stuff right. like that. And people just get intimidated by it. And, you know, I had a fly shop for, like I said, 15 years. I really sucked at it at retail. And, um, I just didn't have an Emmy. Uh, I, I was always better on the water. I knew that and things happened in my life and it gave me an, an out to, to go back to my roots and just guide, you know, I was a guide before I had a fly shop. So, but you obviously have a gift for both. I mean, you also have a gift for, you know, dealing with public and, and, and creating, uh, you know, a customer service that I, like I do know that. I mean, I hear it a lot. People just love how you guys take care of them. Um, you give them the information they want and need. Uh, and that online presence that you have with that YouTube channel is incredible. I mean, you talk about everything from, you know, what a leader really is and tip it and all that kind of stuff to making yourself a better flycaster and demystifying certain things. I mean, that, that, that's, that was brilliant. For you to get in on that at that at the time that you did because 
I don't think there's anybody in Flyfish that's even close to what you've created in your YouTube presence online. And we need that as, as far as the industry goes. So congratulations to you on that that deal. And I've been a part of a couple of them and the filmings. And we did a yeah. few here when you were here. And um, yeah. and just seeing how you guys, you and Dev kind of work it, it's it's impressive and it's it's needed. You know, and I understand why you have so many followers now with it because, you know, you can't you can't ever learn too much in the sport. I mean, you, you know, I mean, it. You, can, you, you have a tendency to take things for granted. You know, I do like things that I think, you know, I've known forever and don't really think about. There's a lot of people out there that are just getting into it and have no idea what I'm when I'm talking about or even thinking. Right. Exactly. So, and uh, you've had you've done a really good job of just simplifying things and, and bringing it back to not not rudimentary, but just bringing it back to where you have different levels of of uh, interest in the sport. You have people that just you're going to go fishing four or five times a year with a buddy or on a trip that don't that don't really have any interest in getting any better. It's just more about just relaxing, getting away from life. Then you have people that are totally into it, like we are and live breathe sleep fishing um and then you have everything in between um and i think you guys have, have filled a, a a very important niche there in in teaching and schooling people in that so uh as a fly fishing community goes i we really appreciate you know what you're doing on that side of it i know i, I know i i see it and i know obviously other people do as well um so Thank you. I really appreciate that. That's that means a lot um, coming coming from you and and uh, you know and you've you've been a you've been a big part of that. I mean, as has uh, Flip Pallet, as has uh, Kelly Gallup, for example, of other people that I've been friends with for a long, long, long time. I mean, heck, I started working with Flip uh, in nineteen ninety eight maybe or 99 kelly and i um i hosted my first trip uh in the fall of 1990 this is shortly after i started working at the shop and i hosted my first trip to johnson's pier marquette river lodge on, on the pier marquette river it was a salmon trip and kelly gallup was one of the guides on that trip and kelly and i became uh, very close friends uh, immediately and immediately started hanging out. And he and I have worked together. I mean, there isn't, you know, I mean, I got a text from him last night and he talked about how his new grand opening went so well. And we just always, when I was down with you, I was texting him pictures and I texted him that big redfish we got and then the snakehead. And, you know, we're just, we're like you and your buddy, Corey. I mean, we just go way back and we're just like, almost like high school buddies. And he's yeah. been a big help to me. And and so a couple of points that you made. First and foremost, the the reason why we we started the YouTube channel is I got so tired of first and foremost the pomp and circumstance that surrounds our industry, the confusion that surrounds our industry, and the impression of a lot of people that it's that it's an elitist sport, that you have to be have a PhD in order to fly fish, and then it has to be expensive. And I remember laying in bed one night and I said, you know what, I don't care what it takes. I don't care if I have to spend my last dollar, but I'm going to get the matter of outfitters message out there. I mean, we've always taught these classes in the shop, 
right? But we're only limited to people that can drive here and come and listen to me in person. Well, uh, you know, uh, the more I learned about it, the more I thought, well, YouTube might be a vehicle and a way to get our message out to the world. And <clears throat> so I think what we've tried to do, yeah, we, we, we get into some, some complicated stuff, but we also break it down. Hey, if you're just wanting to go fishing for a weekend or take your grandkids out and catch some bluegill, well then loop on a simple leader. Here's the kind of lead. Here's how to select the proper leader and then throw the fly in the water and make it act like food. There's fly fishing right there. It's really not all that much more complicated. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. That's the thing. So I think we've been able to come at it from a working man's, a common man's standpoint. Um, and I, I do. I hear, uh, admittedly, I hear that every day in my life. People send emails, they call, and they say, hey, thank you for taking the mystery and you've inspired me to take up fly fishing where I was intimidated before, or I thought this was going to be too too much work or too complicated or too expensive, and it doesn't have to be. Um, the other thing you talked about is customer service, and that's also one thing that I think our industry was somewhat lacking. And uh, a lot of fly shops had this elitist attitude that if you didn't know what leader to use, well, then what are you doing in a fly shop? And, um, you know, our slogan here at Mad River Outfitters, we've started to use this in videos. It's the signature on our emails. Customer service is what we do for a living. Fly fishing is what we love and what we sell. And that is our company mission statement right there. And as I, as I tell the employees, I mean, we'll have a meeting later today. And I tell the employees in every meeting that we have, I wind up the meeting. I said, listen, customer service is expensive. Exceptional customer service is expensive. It costs me a lot of money. But that is the most important number one business expense at Matter for Outfitters is making sure that that customer is 200% over the top thrilled with the service, the, the friendliness, and just the overall willingness to help uh, people. And then the final thing I'll say uh, in this particular conversation is, you know, I, I think that um, the other thing that you and I have both fought throughout our entire careers is that uh, fly fishing has always been viewed as a trout fishing sport. And I think that's where, uh, first of all, you and I, eventually gravitated towards one another and started working together and doing events. And now we're, we're fishing and filming and we've got some other projects in the works. Um, you know, I can remember talking to Dave Whitlock years ago. Dave was a big help to me uh, in, in my early career. Uh, we also wound up filming a, a video together called Carpet. And that was, we released that in the year 2000. And at the time, uh, oh, God, I got so much hate mail uh, from people. Just They absolutely thought we were ruining fly fishing by fishing for carp. And uh, again, if you're in Columbus, Ohio, this is not the trout mecca. I've got three trout streams, but I've got 43 other species of fish that we can fish for, including freshwater drum. We've got carp. We've got, uh, we do have some bowfin. There, there's uh, you can, I can go down the list of these, I mean, panfish, 
Uh, and uh, I think that the industry still needs. But anyways, Dave Whitlock, I asked him, I said, Dave, I said, you're a, you're a hero for warm water and you're a hero for bass and smallmouth. I said, why do you still wind up writing books and articles about trout? And he said, well, Brian, he said, that's where the money is. That's where the money is in our industry still to this day. And I remember thinking, well, I'm going to do everything in my power to help change that and bring it to people's attention that there's way more out there in the world than just trout on a fly rod. And if it swims and if it eats, which if it swims, it eats, it can be caught on a fly rod. I mean, with maybe, maybe a few exceptions. I mean, we haven't yet tried to catch a whale on a fly rod, but I think that might be I think that might be something that we could do, and we're definitely going to have to. We're definitely going to have to film that one. Yeah, yeah. Talking about getting hate mail, that that would be hate mail, hundred percent on that. Yeah, one. not uh, if we got, not if we chased an orca or something, a killer whale. There that, you go. Yeah, we yeah. might get applauded for that. But uh, so yeah, I think right. that's where you have opened so many people's eyes with musky and all the different species that that stripers and all the different things that you fish for and then of course you just introduced me to uh my first snakehead uh yeah. if i'm not mistaken it was a uh, it was six days ago and uh and uh stay tuned or uh, because there's plenty of pictures and video coming on that but if it swims it can be caught on a fly rod and i think more people need to to be aware of that and it needs to get greater respect in our industry. Oh, I agree, hundred percent. I mean, we could we could go on and make a show out of out of that in its own, in itself with we all could. the different species out there. But good on you for making that decision. I mean, that's that's kind of the way I've spent my my entire career. Uh, yes. being where I'm based in Virginia, I have a plethora of of native brook trout streams. We have spring creeks for wild brown trout tailwaters for browns rainbows and brookies uh we had so much cold water fisheries in my backyard because i live in the the blue ridge mountains and i was blessed with that but also was blessed with a ton of warm water uh stuff like smallmouth bass largemouth bass land like landlocked stripers here in smith mountain lake and of course the muskie scene which um i've obviously most known for but, uh, you know, the, the whole Chesapeake Bay, I mean, it's only three and a half hours from my house. Right. All, everything that it offers, what you got to see and all its tributaries. There's just so much out there that, um, you know, I love trout. Don't get me wrong. And I guided for trout for over 25 years. Um, as do, as do I. As do I. Yeah, I love yeah. trout fish. Um, you know, I still spend some time every year on the Mad River here in Ohio. It's still a focus from fishing and conservation. I go out to visit Kelly uh, in Montana every summer. Uh, so I, I, I do love trout fishing, but there's so many other things out there to do uh, that are that are so much fun. And that's again, that's what kind of I think drew me to you originally, and um, pretty much solidified our our friendship and kind of our partnership is that we were, um, you know, we're kindred spirits in that respect is uh, I'm not prejudiced. It doesn't have to be pink or have pink stripe or a yellow belly in order for me to catch it. I mean, that snakehead we got the other day was a gorgeous fish. Yep, absolutely. And that, that brings me to the next thing. Um, 
you know, you talked about Dave, but uh, I know a big, a big part of your life and um, someone that I know, it means a lot to me too is uh, Flip Pallet. Um, and yeah. I remember years ago when, you know, Flip's show, Walker Skate Chronicles was around, you know, I was, a, uh, I was still a big fan of that show and st still pull it up on YouTube every once in a while to watch some of the old shows and just kind of reminisce because it really, it opened the door, not just Flip, but uh, Larry Dahlberg's show, The Hunt for Big Fish. Those right. two guys were instrumental in my career um, before they knew who I was. Um, and just just seeing that there were so many other fish that you could target on a fly rod other than trout. And yeah. and for me, that, that was huge because I had a, a interest in all aspects of fly fishing. And not just fly fishing, but fishing in general. And And then... You know, later in my career, I got to I got to meet Flip and I got to meet Dahlberg and become friends uh, with both of them. Um, you know, but for you, you uh, you were very fortunate enough to be on Flip's show um, and and did some shows with him, which yes, I, I find really amazing and really uh, really cool that you got to do that. And let's talk a little bit about that and a little bit of you, about you and Flip's history. Um, because you and I are getting ready to go sea flip here in a couple of weeks and doing a fly fishing, fly tying clinic down in his, at his house and going to spend some time at Renzetti. Um, but let's, I want to, let's tell that story because it's important because it's fly fishing history, and, but it, it also goes back to fishing other species, right? Cause yes. the, the shows that you did with flip, um, really centered around bass and carp. Right. Well, um, and oddly enough, uh, the story starts with another mutual friend and really our, both of our ultimate hero, and that's Lefty Cray. And I think it was 1996 or 97, and we were, um, we had kind of discovered, I don't want to say discover because I did not discover this. This was shown to me, but we... We expanded on it, and I wound up. I wound up guiding. Um, I had a a sixteen foot John boat with just a trolling motor on it, and I wound up guiding a lot for carp on mulberries in some old uh, quarry lakes that we had access to. And there, during June, July, mostly June and July, these carp would lay up under these mulberry trees and they would gorge themselves on mulberries. So I set out to um, uh, figure out a fly that they would eat. And I, I came up with, and it's, it's nothing more than a sucker spawn, same thing we were using for steelhead. I just had to figure out how to make that fly plop into the water, just like the natural berry did when it fell. So when I started doing this research, um, you know, I would take a fly over there and it wouldn't make a sound when it hit the water and the carp didn't view it as a mulberry. So I had to get the weight just right to get it to plop in the water like it just fell from the tree. And if it plopped just right, they would rush over and eat it. And uh, another thing that I started doing, and I know this won't, you know, I, I I probably shouldn't admit this, but uh, I think you'll appreciate it to a certain extent. Carp have a very keen sense of smell. And you know what I started doing? I started soaking those flies in vanilla. 
And I, <laughs> yep. that, that's kind of taboo in the fly fishing world. But hey, I was I was trying to catch carp. I was just having fun. Uh, I, I don't care what's wrong. When I was a kid throwing plastic worms, you'd spray scent on those. Yeah. yeah I mean, what's wrong with that? When you're fishing a live crawfish, it's got a scent. When we're fishing live crabs in the Chesapeake Bay, they've got a scent. So what, what was yeah. wrong? So anyway, so I I used to call Lefty, and I know you did too. And it was always so uh, uh, it was so amazing to me because he would pick up the phone. And he would just real timidly say, hello. And, and I always, I always thought it was his wife. You know, it sounded like he, he sounded like a woman when he picked up the phone and yep. I'd say, is this lefty? And he says, yes, this is lefty. I'd say lefty, yep. Brian, Fleshig, you know, and finally I talked lefty into coming to matter of outfitters for a weekend. And I think this was 1996. I met him in 1992 he came to one of the trout clubs near us and did a dog and pony show. But then, um, so finally he came out. We did a big show at Matter of Outfitters. He taught everybody knots and signed autographs and blah, blah, blah. So then I took him carp fishing. So I took him over to this, these quarry lakes. And it really is a beautiful spot. And this carp fishing was so unique. He immediately said, Brian, he said, you've got to have Flip over here and you guys have to film a Walker's K Chronicles. He said, this is so beautiful and this would make for such great television. He's like, you guys got to do this. He said, I'm going to call Flip and I'm going to tell him all about this. I'm going to tell him he's got to come over here and, and, and bring the crew and film a Walker's K. So Lefty said, um, Brian, in the meantime, here's Flip's fax number. And of course, there's a whole story. There's a whole story there because Lefty had just bought Flip a fax machine, and so Lefty was really keen on people faxing Flip to prove to him that it was a valuable piece of uh, piece of uh, machinery that he that Lefty bought him. So Lefty said, "Here's his fax number. Fax him." Well, I probably faxed Flip for I don't know year and a half, two years, just once a month. I would send him a fax. Never, ever heard back from it. Then finally, <clears throat> I get a phone call one day, and it, I, I recognize the voice. And he said, is this Brian? I said, yes, it is. He said, this is Flip Pallet. He said, why do you keep faxing me? Please stop faxing me. He said, I don't even know how to use this thing. He said, why don't you call me if you want to talk to me? So, uh Anyhow, I invited Flip to come to again to Matter for Outfitters. He came over. I took him over. He immediately agreed. He said, "We got to film this." So, um, actually, it was uh, we wound up filming first because I told him all about this place that we had access to. We were doing some trophy largemouth bass fishing at a ten thousand acre wildlife preserve here in Ohio. They had a hundred and twenty quarry lakes strip mine pits and so we went and did that first so we did the wilds episode the next summer we did the carp episode and then the following january i took him to uh patagonia and we filmed two episodes in patagonia believe it or not and those two never made it on television because the walkers k was it was canceled before those could get to uh television but uh, again, long story short, 
or it might be a short story long at this point, but uh, Flip and I just developed a friendship and a working relationship. Uh, I think we worked well on camera together. Uh, and, you know, he said as much and he said we should do more stuff together. So we started teaching schools together. We started doing hosting trips together. We did schools in the Bahamas. We did schools in South Florida. We used to do a, a trip we called the South Florida Sampler. Um, and those were really great trips because what they did for me, quite frankly, is the customers would go out with guides and um, Flip and I would just hop on his boat. And so I got to tool around the Everglades where I, I, I actually grew up fishing in the Everglades with my, my Uncle Bill. But here we are 20 years later, and I was tooling around the Everglades with probably the king of the Everglades, and that was Flip. And I, I mean, that's, that's where I learned everything. I learned everything I know about rods, about casting, about leaders, about presenting a fly, about setting the hook, about catching snook, catching redfish, catching tarpon. Um, uh, I all learned it right there in the Everglades primarily uh, by being on a skiff with Flip. And that's not something, not something I could ever replace. Um, and, and also, there's a, you know, there may be Rob Fordyce and a handful of other people that have spent that much time with him on a skiff. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough to spend some time with him on his airboat and um, his uh, his uh, his old John boat. That's um, which the history behind that John boat in itself is pretty pretty it's amazing. amazing. With, yeah, with John Donnell and. Yeah. And um, uh, well, the guy that had it forever, just uh, what I'm blanking on his name right now, but it, it's that, that John boat meant a lot. It's got a l unbelievable history, you know, and I right. did some filming with TFO with that when we came out with the A2X rods. And um, but I, but, you know, I, I definitely envy you with being able to spend that time in the Everglades with him because that's that's what I always think of Flip, you know, right? Um, right. In, in his Walker's K uh, show. And, you know, I, I, I'm looking forward to go, seeing both of you guys again here in, uh, I guess, three weeks or a little more than three weeks, I guess, yeah. maybe a month from now, actually. Um, yeah, it'll be just about a month, but that's that's really exciting. So we, um, you know, after the pandemic, um, you know, Flip and I didn't see each other for, well, we were, we were down there filming in December of 2019, we filmed a bunch of stuff. And then, of course, the pandemic hit and we didn't see each other for, you know, well, about two, a little over two years. And um, so finally, things started to loosen up and, and, you know, let's face it, Flip's, Flip's an older guy and definitely a high risk category. So he laid low. And then finally, he called me and he said, hey, Brian, I've got this idea which he does a lot. He calls me and he says, I have an idea. And when Flip calls you or texts you, now he actually texts. Um, that was a big step for him. But if he texts you and he says, hey, Brian, I've got an idea, you, you listen, you pay attention. So Flip had this idea and he said, hey, I think we can do these schools. We can, we can revisit our schools. And he said, and here's the thing, we're going to do them in my driveway at his house. And I said, oh, my God, Flip, people are just going to go crazy over this. Um, 
being invited to Flip's house. And on Friday night, we have a cocktail party and we build a campfire and we tell stories and we talk about Lefty and we talk about Walker's K Chronicles. Flip will tell you the history of how the Walker's K came about. And then on Saturday and Sunday, we do uh, a school. And we kind of have all these topics, of course, casting and knot tying and leader building and what have you. Well, then we were doing one this past April, and we both agreed that his driveway in Mims, Florida, during, say, July, August, September, October, even November, is going to be way too hot for everybody to sit in the driveway, you know. So Flip had this idea. He said, well, why don't we why don't we do some fly tying schools? And let's not only do you and I, let's invite some of the best tires uh, out there. Somebody that's way better than both you and I that would that would really draw a crowd. And so we we kind of hatched this idea of doing a fly tying version of the schools. And of course, your name was the first that came up because Flip's a big fan of yours. And um, and of course, we have a relationship and we both consider uh, you, uh, quote, quote, a game changing fly tire. And so I think we were both sitting there having a cocktail and we called you. And of course, you said yes. And then I called Lily at Renzetti and she said, we'd love to have you guys. So Friday night will be at Flip's house, and then Saturday and Sunday will be at the Renzetti factory, which is about 15 minutes away in Titusville. And um, we're really looking forward to it. We're going to do some. Uh, we're going to do a lot of storytelling. We're going to Flip's going to tie a few flies. You're going to tie a few flies. I'm going to tie a few flies. In fact, I've got a new fly I've been working on. I'm going to debut that uh, the, uh, on that weekend. Uh, it's been catching some fish for me. Uh, some some redfish, some, some snook, uh, actually caught some bonefish on it not long ago. And, and anyhow, we're also going to talk about some leader stuff. We're going to do some casting demonstrations. It's just going to be, uh, you know, I think a weekend uh, that's, um, I don't think this has ever been done before. Right. I, 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 I cannot wait to do it. You know, I was very uh, lucky uh, before Lefty got sick and, and um, wasn't able to do it anymore. But Flip and Lefty used to do these weekends a lot. Yeah. Um, there's a guy named Bob Bryan that used to put these weekends together quite a bit over the right. years. Um, mm-hmm. And I was privileged to do a, a couple of them, five or six of them. Um, and one or two, well, two of them I got to do with, with Flip. And uh, I got to experience that whole thing. And it, it's just, it's so special for me because I'm such a fan of him. Um, to be able to spend that time and, and, you know, learn from it still. Right. I mean, he's got so many little things that he's done over the years that every time I'm around him, I pick up a couple of things, whether it's how you store your fly on your rod with the leader and wrapping it around a couple of times and then popping it when you're ready to use it again to um, just cooking, you know, things he's done, you know, cooking, whatever. I mean, it's just so many He's just a wealth of knowledge and a true outdoorsman in all aspects. I think that Flip probably taught me the proper way how to tie my shoes. I mean, <laughs> you know, he's got yeah. he's always got something, a better way to do it, a better way to do this. Or he's always, you know, <clears throat> uh, when we were together, I think it was what, last uh, Monday, we were driving 
we were driving somewhere and I got a text from Flip and he said, hey, Brian, I have the best idea ever. Wait till you hear this. We're going to make millions uh, because we all now also kind of developed some products together. And uh, I, I can't share the idea, but I finally talked to him and uh, we'll, we'll I'll, I'll fill you in on it. But it's uh, it's a new product that we're going to try to bring to market. Uh, I don't think we're going to make millions, but. Uh, it, it'll be pretty cool. Anytime you get to develop a product and and help Flip bring it to reality, but he's just got he's his mind is always working and always coming up with new and better ways to do things. And I'm like you. Every time I'm around the man, whether it's cooking frog legs, or it's tying your shoes, or sharpening a hook, or doing whatever i mean there's just there's never been anybody like him yeah that's for sure well you know that's um i guess the end of september and uh i can't can't wait to do it and um you know i guess we're gonna probably maybe try to do some uh, on the water stuff maybe eventually i mean Mm -hmm. this thing i could could expand from here hopefully it does but we'll see um but I, i really wanted to kind of move on and talk a little bit about some stuff and part of what ASGA is all about, and that's conservation. You know, you guys uh, travel a lot, right? I know you do hosted trips all over the world. Uh, yes. From the mm-hmm. Amazon to uh, Montana to Bonefish, you know, Mexico for permit, whatever it may be. Right. I mean, I know you guys have a big destination travel deal, but one of one, one place that's near and dear to both of our hearts is Louisiana. Um, and yes. Louisiana's hurting, you know, and... Uh, Yep. ASGA has put a big push on Louisiana here because, you know, the, the, the speckled trout fishery is, is took a major dump over the past several years. I mean, the average trout is 12 inches long. <laughs> and, you know, that I mean, that tells you everything, right? So, you know what? Why, it's a, why the average trout is 12 inches long? You know, because that's, that's at the level where they could start keeping them. Right. Yep. So... You know, there's probably millions of 11-inch trout, but there's not that many fish above 12 that's around. So what's exactly. happening is they're running out of fish to keep, and then they're moving into other species like redfish. Now, redfish is getting so much more pressure than they used to. And when all the environmental changes that's happening in Louisiana, losing the marsh and getting all that influx of fresh water and, and all that stuff, uh, you know, we were notified by a bunch of guides. I've been going down to Louisiana quite a quite a bit over the past ten years. I know you have mm-hmm. and whatnot, and I've seen the changes. I've seen uh, the marsh change. You know, places that used to be all lush grass and now it's not, and you see these big cuts built in, not only from just erosion, but also from just storm damage. I mean, there's been a lot of bad storms over the past fifteen years, twenty years down there that's changing the marsh and you know those are things that you you really can't control but what we can control is how we respect the fishery and what it it is and and how you respect the fishery by catching what you need and putting back the rest not just keeping a limit because it says you can do it right Right, so um and so Back in June, I think it was now, I'm not sure. We had a, a notice of intent um, that was created by sending a bunch of our guides that were very passionate, that we both know, Ty, Hibbs, um, 
Bailey Shorts, um, Greg Moon, several, several guides um, that, that are very important to ASGA that are on the front lines, Ron Ratliff, that marched on. Uh, a lot of these guys took their time off to go to this meeting and to to have their vo voice heard in front of the commission. Um, so we're now at this this um, crossroads where we had this letter of intent, this notice of intent to send to the legislation in Louisiana before they had this ridiculous 30% um, reduction, I think it might have been, which would have taken 30 years to have the redfish recover. And a lot of people don't realize the redfish are in, in they're, they're hurting. Um, you know, yeah. they, when you turn your, your main fish that they, everybody loves catching down there, speckled trout, and now there's just not that many of them, they move on to the next thing, which is, it's, and I see it here, it's a never-ending cycle in the bay. It's like striped bass was the main fish here to target, and it's collapsed. So the next species that they target is cobia. So cobia is on the threshold. People don't want to talk about it, but it is. I mean, mm -hmm. there's, there's been a 13, it's 13 inches in the average size cobia over the past two years. It's, it's dropped. The average size that you catch is 13 inches smaller than it used to be. What's that tell you? There's not in that two, many adult in two fish years. Yeah, I mean, that, two years, yes. that's, that's um, dramatic. And that's, yeah, that, that just be, Tony could probably jump in on that one. It, too, it might not be two years, but I know it's been very few years, 13 inches. Um, from, it's changed. So what's next? Yeah. The next thing has been, I've, I've seen it. So the next thing now, like they're not catching as many cobia. Now they're jumping in to sheep's head. The Chesapeake Bay is blessed it's the largest it's the largest estuary in the world right, right? and it it it, it harvests. i mean it used to be the greatest striped bass fishery it used to be the greatest greatest cobia fishery mm -hmm. and i got to experience both of those and, and the sheep's head i mean we have giant like dinosaur sh sheep's head here mm -hmm. and it, the, the ironic thing is i got to go when we first made our big push in louisiana with asga we were able to go to the sheepy tournament in louisiana to introduce ourselves to a lot of the guides on the um, that's been making their living there. It's just a way for them to kind of cut loose and hang out with each other. And you go catch sheep's head for two days and have, and have some party party time and some just, you know, fellowship and whatever, you know, it's, it's a good time. And, but it, it brings me back to this. It's like, they, when, I don't know, it's that old mentality is what like keeping fish, keeping as many as you can, because we can keep, X amount of fish a day. And if, if they base their success on that, right. And yeah. that drives me crazy because to me, the success is in the day is, is, is the experience that the angler gets to have with the guy or with, right. with the friend that's with them. It's not always about killing everything that they can catch. Sometimes it's about, right? you're hundred percent right. I agree with you that it's for, for me, uh, it's the experience and it's the company that I'm with. Um, you know, if I'm fishing with Flip or with you or with Kelly or, or for that matter, hundreds of other friends that I've enjoyed fishing with over the years, I have a lot of people that travel with me. I have a lot of people that have traveled with me for almost 30 years now. And, and uh, I just relish a day on the water with them because they're such close friends and we have so, so many good times and so many laughs. Um, I, I don't want to sound cliche, but it's, 
you know, and, and of course I've never, I've never been a big fish killer in my life. Um, uh, but there's uh, nothing uh, wrong with taking a few fish to have a of fish. Course fry not. No, 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 no. We, I love eating redfish on the half shell. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm not opposed to killing and eating a trout. I mean, we every fair share of blue crabs when you're here. No, oh, we had our fair share. I'm still, still recovering from that. Um, yeah. But you know, every time I, I have a, when I go out to Montana, I have a day off from the clients, and I go up into the mountains. And Kelly always has me bring back a, a, a brook trout. He loves to eat brook trout and throw them in a skillet with butter. And so, yep. you no, know, there's nothing wrong with killing and eating a fish. That's that's a whole different subject than it. Uh, another segment of our industry that's kind of out of whack. Um, but it's, it's more about the, and I'm sorry to get off on a tangent, but it's more about the experience and the company that I'm with uh, and enjoying where I'm at. I mean, I I enjoyed watching the the sunrise last week and the sunset that we saw out on the water and that, I mean, we ran into that pod of what, 200, 250 dolphins. I mean, That was just a, an amazing, amazing experience that some of that footage that we got is going to be as or more important than the fish that we caught. Right. I agree yep. with you. 100%. Yeah. So let's go back. Let's go back to the Louisiana thing. I mean, yeah. that's a big part of your hosted trips. And yes. you know, we were able to get a, that, that notice of intent with the, with the commission by having these guys step up. Right. We, so we went from a, I think a 30% reduction to a 55% reduction. Uh, The slot is 18 to 24 inches uh, with no take of bull reds, um, Mm -hmm. which that used to be, that used to be the deal and the no guide limit. So the guides are not going to be able to kind of add to the catch of the day with the clients, Mm -hmm. um, which is going to help, which takes it from a 30 plus year, uh, recovery period to a 10 to 12 year recovery period. That's something, right? Yes. I mean, I, I've always been on the side of why don't we all suck it up and not, and just let the, let the fishery, let, let nature take its course. You know, why, my opinion is, Hey, let's just take five years and make it recover. Right. I mean, yeah. to me, you know, it, you're going to get, you're going to get people that's going to complain and whatever. It's like, I just can't do this or whatever. Da, 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 da. But it's like, you know what, if you can, if you can just not catch any fish for a couple I mean, you can fish for them, but don't kill them for a couple years. Then you're going to see what it, it can do. And I see it. I mean, you got to see it a little yeah. bit of it. You, you got mm-hmm. to sample a little bit of it here in the Bay. Tony was a big instrumental factor in, why we have the biggest redfish in the world, because you cannot keep a, a, a bull redfish, which is a fish over 28 inches in, in the, uh, in the Atlantic. You cannot keep one. Um, that's why we have fish that are well over 50 inches. Now, you, yeah. I mean, you got to experience, you got to taste that. And Tony, yeah. Tony was instrumental in making that happen. So we need to make that happen there because the economic impact, the numbers are starting to come in because ASGA is a big part of, of building conservation with science data, right? And so we're doing these, we're doing everything we can. Uh, Tony can hop in on this if he wants. I don't know if he's working or whatever. I know he's kind of letting me handle all of this, but there's numbers there that indicate like each guide 
in Louisiana is is their value there is 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 unbelievable. Like they're they're their own park. They're their own like state park. It's the much the money that's generated by them guiding every day and bringing people to their boats and experience what Louisiana has has to offer. And you are a part of that because I know you go down there several times a year. Mm-hmm. You bring ten to twelve, fifteen. I don't know how many clients that you bring. Yeah, Let's my talk a uh, bit about that. My, my trip in October, I think I've got uh, sixteen clients. Uh, well, 15 clients plus myself as host of the trip. Um, no, it's, it's, um, you know, I, uh, again, I grew up fishing for redfish in the Everglades and, um, my uncle lived in Miami, uh, starting in about 1981. And I started hanging out down there. I would spend several weeks a year on my summers, uh, you know, summer break from school, and just started fishing the Everglades, um, uh, you know. And I used to fish Flamingo and all the places that flip fish. So it's it's really kind of ironic, um, you know, that that I spent so much time fishing there. And you know, back then, and that's a whole other story. I mean, the redfish in the Everglades is is a whole other story as well. But good lord, if we got a six pound redfish or an eight pound redfish, it was a big deal. Um, and then I started hearing about this fishery in Louisiana, and I said, there's no way. I mean, a 20 or a 30 or heck, uh, you know, we, we published a video a couple of years ago, and I caught a 40-pounder um, in uh, <clears throat> down there in Louisiana. That was my biggest at the time. And now I, now I look, come over and fish with you, and you guys are showing me 50 to 70-pound redfish. So... Um, but I fished in Louisiana for a long time, for 15 years before I ever, uh, got anything close to 40 pounds. I mean, it's, it's not like it happens every day. Um, so Louisiana, uh, became a big part of my saltwater, uh, kind of rotation and what I like to do. And then I developed some really great friendships down there. Uh, we've got a really, the woodland plantation is where uh, we go and we stay and they feed us well. I've got great guides that I'm great friends with now. So yeah, we, you know, we funnel, we probably funnel 150 to $200,000 a year into Louisiana's economy. And we're talking about we're renting cars to drive from the airport now. We're buying gasoline. We're buying, uh, we're yeah. buying we're buying lots of drinks. <laughs> uh, we're supporting Woodland Plantation, which um, which in turn uh, has a staff of, you know, 25 or 30 people that take care of us. Um, and I could just go down the list of the, the economic impact. And then, of course, we're paying the guides. We're tipping the guides. And then even back here at home, uh, Mad River Outfitters is selling rods. We're selling lines. We're selling reels. We're selling flies. Um, you know, the economic impact is so much goes so much deeper. It's like the roots on a tree. I mean, you see the fish and you see the day that I had out on the water. What you didn't think about was all those things that went into making that happen and all the money that was spent to make that happen. Uh, uh, and I might be uh, conservative in that. It might be, you know, it might be a, 
a $400,000 a year thing that just Mad River Outfitters and Mad River Outfitters clients are funneling into that economy. Now think about day in, day out, how many people are fishing in Louisiana. And I think that that, that government and that legislature down there and the new governor that's going to be taken over, I think they're way, way underestimating the power of the recreational angling community, not just the fly fishing, but the recreational angling community that is not interested in just filling a cooler. Right. Again, we'll, we'll throw a redfish. Trust me, I will throw be the first one to throw a redfish in the cooler because I know I'm taking it back and they're going to do redfish on the half shell for me. And there might not be, uh, it's, well, it ranks right up there with blue crabs in Virginia now. Um, right. But I can't think of anything I'd rather eat, and I, I don't hesitate. But if if the law is the law, and the law is there for a reason to allow that fishery to recover within, I like what you said, within five years. How ridiculous is it to say, well, it'll recover in fifteen years? Well, that might be great for our kids, but I don't. I hope I'm fishing down there in fifteen years, but I don't know. Right. Um, I'd I'd rather say we don't know what the environment's going to do in the in the meantime. You know, well that's that's the other thing is is uh, and that's a whole other topic. I mean, what do they say? They're losing a football field, and Tony might know better. But a football field's worth of marsh every day is being lost. Right. That's staggering. Yep. Yep. It's 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 uh, you can't even wrap your head around that and then couple that with the fact that they're over harvesting over harvested the trout or they're over harvesting the redfish based on what the population can handle um it, it's just ludicrous and if we're not careful we're going to destroy that and then where do we go right i watched the everglades disappear and there's hardly any reason to go to the everglades anymore i asked flip once we started coming out of the pandemic, I said, Flip, well, let's do our floor, South Florida sampler trip again. Let's let's revive that and let's bring that back. And Flip said, Brian, why would anybody want to go fish in South Florida? He said, there's no – and think of how scary that is. Think of when yeah. you and I were growing up and what Bud and Mary's and Isla Mirada and what the, the Everglades. Think That was the holy grail of fishing and holy grail of fly fishing and it was a it was a uh you know an incubator for so many people billy payton just go down the list of all these people and and now it's a shell of what it used to be and nobody wants to go there everybody moved over to louisiana now we're going to screw that up where are we going to go you know right if we destroy yeah. all these things and the government lets the masses uh, just throw this all in the cooler, uh, we're going to have nothing left, man. We're, in fact, I got, news, I got news for y'all. Y'all are going to have to start carp fishing, and then I will be a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I hear you, buddy. Well, um, you know, I really appreciate everything you've done. I know you guys are at Mad River are all in to helping us out. And I appreciate you guys signing that letter yeah. uh, that we, we have out there as far as, you know, having our voice heard. We want the legislation in Louisiana to know that we're serious and we're, 
a committed group and we're going to be there to make sure that our, our voice is heard. And, um, you know, I know Mad River and their cl and their clients are going to have their voice heard for sure, because you guys, you guys are doing a great job, not only supporting the industry as far as having a, one of the best shops in the country, uh, but, but your YouTube channel, I mean, it's, it's spreading the love of fly fishing in a way it should be spread in a non bullshit way, non, you know, it's a very common sense way to go about it. It's, it's no voodoo built into it. It is what it is. And it's, uh, you know, I know ASGA and Tony and myself and everybody else, uh, really appreciate your support. And, um, you know, I look forward to uh, seeing you in a couple weeks, man. And I uh, really appreciate you sharing your story here with us today. Well, I mean, first and foremost, thanks for having me on. It's a real honor. Um, you know, and I think it's a, a really cool uh, situation to talk about the history and the similar the similar paths that you and I both both took to get to where we are. And like you said, being of similar age and having the same heroes, it's, it's a really neat story. And I think uh, the time we spent last week in, in Virginia together, um, uh, you know, I think you made the comment that it was great getting to know you that much better and, and to hang out and to, and, you know, drink some beers and eat some blue crabs and, and uh, fish our tails off. Yeah. Um, but I look forward to more, and and I think as as we move forward in the future, I think uh, I think folks are going to be hearing a lot out of uh, Brian and Blaine and Matt and Outfitters and the Chocolate Factory working together and doing events, doing hosted trips together, doing uh, schools and things together. I, I just know that that's going to be the case because I think we come at this from such a similar angle that it would be uh, crazy not to focus on that. And then when it comes to ASGA, uh, more than happy to, uh, you know, I think, like you said, with the YouTube channel, I think we've kind of stayed out of politics on purpose for uh, some time, but it may well be time to, uh, to kind of get involved. And we're more than happy to, especially for something as near and dear to our heart as Louisiana and that fishery, uh, on behalf of you, on behalf of Tony and ASGA, um, if there's ever anything we can do, yeah, you have our support. We signed the letter. I think that I think our logo is up on your website now. If I did all that stuff right, um, so we are a hundred percent behind that. I I, I want to hear more. Uh, there's more conservation efforts that we can get involved with. There's so many things around this country that people need to know about and people need to support. So um, you guys have our support. Feel free to reach out to me uh, if there's ever anything we can do or help get the message out because this is so, so important to all of us. And the coastal fisheries, um, so much depends on them. So it's it's our pleasure and thanks in return for what you and Tony are doing. It's it's uh, We need more people like you in this world. Oh, thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for taking your time. And uh, I know you got customers and uh, employees you need to go talk to, but uh, keep up the great work, man. And uh, I look forward to seeing you here in a couple of weeks. You bet, man. We're going to have a, we're going to have a great weekend. And if anybody's interested, there's still two spots open. Um, you can check oh. it out. Yep. Two spots open. Um, check it out at madriveroutfitters.com. Yeah. Well, Hopefully those two spots will be taken right after this because, man, I know I can't 
I can't not wait to spend more time with Flip. You know, it's it's a, he's a national treasure, just like Lefty Lefty is. And I know Tony feels the same way. I know Tony Tony's got a deep deep uh, friendship with Lefty, and Lefty's touched him quite a bit and helped him, you know, along in this whole journey that we're all on. Um, he just did the conservation side of stuff. So, um, with that being said, man, I really appreciate you taking the time today and, uh, hopefully we can get together and do this again 